So, Laura, do you ski when it's 60 degrees or do you shift to paddleboard mode immediately? <laughs> the paddleboard is still in my basement, but uh, I think I want to play tennis this weekend and ski. And there's nothing like a good, super warm T-shirt, hair down, sunglasses kind of ski day. It's super <laughs> All right. fun. All right. The weather's supposed to be beautiful. Before we get there, we have a podcast to do. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Laura and Layla Atassi and Lisa Garvin. It's really nice to be coasting into a Friday with beautiful weather predicted in early March. Amen. My- totally agree. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Who are the applicants for Ohio's statewide school superintendent? And should we be afraid? Laura, after reading the story we published yesterday, I think the answer is yes, we should be very afraid. Absolutely. As a parent of kids in public school, I think this is really scary. And it seems like an extension of the local school board fight over critical race theory and social emotional learning and and everything that isn't, you know, reading, writing and arithmetic, basically. But the state superintendent is the education education chief for Ohio. They head up the Ohio Department of Education. They administer school funding and standardized tests. They issue school and district report cards. They develop academic standards standards and model curricula and provide educators with professional development. So this is not just a figurehead position. This is really getting into the, the weeds of how we run our schools. And uh, Paolo DiMario resigned in September. So this was the last day for applicants this week. One of the scariest applicants, I think, is Kimberly M. Ritchie. She's an attorney who served in the U.S. Department of Education under Betsy DeVos from 2017 to 2021, and she acted as an assistant secretary in the Office for Civil Rights. Basically, she rescinded the Obama administration's 2014 non-binding recommendations on how schools can tackle the issue of students of color being subjected to more discipline than their white classmates. And then... Recently, in December, she wrote a report for the American Enterprise Institute, which is a right-leaning think tank, called Enforcing Disciplinary Leniency. And she's urging governors and state legislators to take steps to defend the administrative autonomy of school districts regarding school discipline. So she doesn't want anybody telling them how to do. She's also been a president of a consulting firm and drafted model legislation that regulates the provision of race-based instruction in K-12 programs and activities. And those words really could mean a lot of things um there's also i mean there's 27 people up for this there's another guy his name is steve dakin he was a member of the state board of education until last friday and all of a sudden he quit and now he's running for a state superintendent so who picks and how how do they get into place so the board's going to screen these applicants and i don't know if they end up voting on them or the governor i would think the governor's gonna have to say because this is the chief of his department but most of the other people um have traditional education backgrounds a lot of them are from ohio some of them are just regular teachers which is interesting and then officials from maryland massachusetts and nevada actually have put put their hats in the ring for this well, DeWine likes to talk about his background as an educator, and hopefully he would use that background to make sure you get an education-focused superintendent. DePaulo was great. He was, one of, he was very well-respected, did a great job. We should have somebody in that vein, not some political hack that's there to push an agenda. I absolutely agree. I mean, it, it was really divisive 
in the fall when everybody was running for school board and people were talking about critical race theory, even though it's not even taught in K-12 education and, and just playing on people's fears and using the schools as a political pawn. And these are our kids. This is their education. Like It should not be a partisan issue. And you can return it to some level of sanity by, by naming somebody like an Eric Gordon, somebody mm-hmm. that is focused four square on education. Let's hope the governor does it. He's made some cuckoo decisions regarding education. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Speaking of the governor, what's the latest bill for the taxpayers because of how Governor Mike DeWine and other Republican leaders has misbehaved in drawing new legislative and congressional districts? Lisa, it's not just bad news for the future of voters. It's expensive bad news. It's $9 million worth of bad news. The Ohio House on Wednesday um, approved that amount for to distribute among the 88 county elections boards, used the money to hire additional workers and or overtime pay for current workers, um, ballot production costs it would cover, and also vendors who, who the elections boards deal with. Frank LaRose, the Secretary of State, gets to decide how this money will be distributed among the 88 counties, assuming that larger counties would get more money. This money is coming from the state's general revenue fund. And this came as an amendment to a Senate bill, Senate Bill 9, which requires state agencies to cut regulations by 30% by the year 2025. Um, The Ohio Elections Officials Association says that the delay on these maps, which is ongoing, that squeezes their preparation time for the May 3rd primary, and they fear it could lead to mistakes or voter confusion. so, you know, I, there LaRose and I believe Dave Yost want to move the primary, but there's been no movement to move the primary yet. So uh, it'll be interesting to see. And we have no maps. So and we don't know when we're going to get new maps. So we'll see how that goes. And this this uh, nine million dollars goes now to the Ohio Senate for a concurrence vote. You know, given what we've learned in recent history about the best way to get things done in the legislature is to bribe them, maybe the best use of that $9 million would be to bribe them to postpone the election because the rushed election is what's costing all this money. Of course, I'm kidding, but it says everything about this legislature that they have an easy path for making this work by postponing the election, and every elections official have asked mm-hmm. them to do that, and they refuse to do so. So now... They're squandering our money in addition to wreaking havoc on on the voters. And the Senate Bill 9, of course, this is this amendment really has nothing to do with Senate Bill 9. But Senate Bill 9 apparently wants to eliminate rules and regulations that are redundant, outdated or have, you know, outdated or uh adverse language and adverse impacts on the business and the public. So if this bill passes, all agencies in the state would have to eliminate two rules before implementing one new one. Yeah, that's a conservative trope that that we have too many regulations and we just need to wipe them out. When when you ask them what would you wipe out, they never come up with a whole lot of specifics. They can always come up with a wacky example or two. But but this idea that all of the regulations in place are unnecessary it just it just doesn't hold any water. It's something that they do for campaign time. You're listening to Today in Ohio. 
Was there anything surprising in the filing by Republicans to defend the maps they drew for the Ohio House and Senate districts? Layla, the Supreme Court will be deciding this very soon, we hope, and in either keeping these maps because they're proportional or rejecting them because they're still political shenanigans. What did the Republicans argue in trying to preserve them? I mean, I don't think there was anything surprising here, really, right? I mean, it feels like Groundhog Day in the redistricting world. The Republicans say the court should uphold their maps, and the Democrats are saying the court should reject those maps as unconstitutional and block the Republicans from trying to use them and even consider hiring someone else to draw a set on their own. Uh, the maps, of course, favor the Republicans to win 54% of Ohio's state legislative districts and Democrats 46%. That's the ratio that's identical to the proportion of the statewide vote each party got in the recent elections. But, you know, the key issue here is the number of Democratic-leaning toss-up districts. Those are the districts that are within three percentage points. And should a handful of voters vote Republican in each of those districts, it would likely cement this super powerful supermajority for Republicans. There's no way that Democrats could achieve that same outcome with these maps. Andrew Tobias writes that although they made separate filings with the court, the Republicans on the Ohio Redistricting Commission, DeWine, LaRose, and, uh, you know, Cup and Huffman, they were all on the same page in their, their written arguments on Thursday. They say that the new state legislative maps are constitutional, and even if the court doesn't agree, justices should reject calls from parties in the redistricting case to bypass the commission or postpone the upcoming elections. Huffman's filing accuses the Democrats of being willing to basically risk chaos in the election by forcing this <laughs> process past deadlines just so they can get the most Democratic-leaning outcome. And then on the other side, Allison Russo and Vernon Sykes, the Democrats on the commission, they were accusing Republicans of refusing to move the election to put political pressure on the court, which is exactly what I said they were doing last week. <laughs> so, um, I mean, the Democrats said in their filing, the Republican commissioners have treated redistricting like a game. The Ohio Constitution is an obstacle to creatively evade. But for Ohio voters, this is our democracy. We depend on this court to protect it. So, you know, that's what we expect, right? I didn't think there were any surprises here. Yeah, and it all comes down to Maureen O'Connor, and I still think the odds are that she'll accept these maps because they are proportional. But we'll see. She may get her back up because they violated every process they were supposed to follow, and she is a stickler for the rules. I don't think she'll go outside the prescribed system because she is a stickler for the mm -hmm. rules. Hopefully we'll get a decision. You know, our politics editor, Chris Wernowski, is predicting it'll happen at 6 o'clock this evening as they're heading into <laughs> yeah, the beautiful weekend. Right. I hope that doesn't happen. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Why are National Democrats arguing before the Ohio Supreme Court for an Ohio legislative map that has fewer Democratic seats than the map recently approved by Republican leaders and it is before the Ohio Supreme Court? Layla, this seems like it doesn't make sense. Yeah. They want a map with fewer seats, but there is sense Yeah, to this it. is interesting. Andrew Tobias points out that this is a story that really illustrates, <clears throat> excuse me, the complexities and the nuances of political map making and, and, and also the strategic differences between the local and national Democratic Party. So the National Democratic Redistricting Committee, which is led by former U.S. Attorney General Eric Holder, has asked the Ohio Supreme Court to unilaterally adopt a plan that was crafted in September by Jonathan Rodden. He's a Stanford University professor that the group hired as an, a map-making expert to consult in, in their lawsuit against the Ohio maps. 
And doing this would circumvent a state constitutional ban on the court approving a map that the Ohio Redistricting Commission didn't pass. And to do that, the group has suggested this legal maneuver that could lead to a federal court adopting the Rodden Plan over any objections from Ohio Republicans. The Rodden Plan favors Republicans to win 57% of Ohio's state legislative districts compared to 54% in the plan that the Ohio Republicans approved on February 24th. That's the one that the Ohio Supreme Court is, is considering right now. But the Rodden plan also has fewer Democratic seats than the one local Democrats on, on the redistricting commission proposed. So why would they be favoring this plan? It really boils down to those toss-up districts that we were discussing in the last segment of this podcast. The official Republican plan has 26 slightly leaning toward Democrats, projected, you know, projected to favor Democrats by 3% or less, and there are no Republican-leaning districts that are even competitive in that way. If Republicans were to win every toss-up district, which could totally happen, they could hold up to 74% of the state's legislative seats, which is more than what they have under the current maps. So the Rodden plan has roughly seven toss-up districts. Four are Republican-leaning and three are Democratic-leaning. So in other words, the Rodden plan gives Democrats a firmer floor, Andrew says, and Republicans would have a lower ceiling. So because of those, the smaller number of competitive Democratic-leaning seats. So two other groups of redistricting advocates that are plaintiffs in Ohio's litigation have, have thrown their support behind this plan. But the question is, you know, why didn't the Democrats on the redistricting commission propose it themselves? And Andrew points out it's because of how this plan treats the incumbents. Under the Rodden plan, there are a considerable number of districts in which the incumbents would be double bunked. That means that they're drawn into the same district. And in some cases, the incumbents are drawn out of the district that they currently represent. So it's just interesting how, you know, the National Democratic Party and the local Democratic Party, I mean, the strategies are, you know, based on different considerations, I guess. Well, this does get back to what the Chief Justice said in her original concurring opinion when they threw out the first set of maps that, Ohio, you should get rid of these guys that are making the maps because they all have a vested interest yeah, right. and can't put aside their partisan. I mean, this is the map that I think the, the rotten map is what voters really hope for when they change the plan. I love how there are people that are saying the voters didn't know what they were doing. It's always great to devalue the voters and call them morons, <laughs> which is what right. the Republicans have been doing of late. But but we're not going to get this map with these elected leaders in the mix. They're all selfish and trying to maintain power. And they've proven time and time again, they don't care about the voters. They don't care about anything but their own stupid power. So the question is, if we change the system in the next few years, how do we create a system that gets us to the Rodden map, which is universally better and fair? I don't know. I mean, what's 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 ex- exceptionally troubling to me about the the fact that that our local Democratic leadership won't 
won't consider this or won't wouldn't have proposed it themselves is that it's not even that they're putting party first it's that they're putting themselves first right they're they're both the republicans and democrats in this process are not acting in good faith right. clearly i mean you have I to mean, look beyond your own time in office right you have to actually think like i'm not always going to be holding this seat so what? i mean you sh- why would you you should be asking what's the right thing to do not the right thing to do for me i mean the republicans are taking the big beating because they're in the majority in the state but the but everybody has something to do maybe we should change the constitution to say <laughs> rodden makes the maps wouldn't that take care of it <laughs> we should do we'll a profile see. on this rodden guy have we done that yeah we should i mean i don't think that I don't believe the Supreme Court will unilaterally say that's the map because the Constitution doesn't empower them to do so. What's sad is this is a much better map for Ohio, and we're not going to get it because of all the selfish actions of the Mm -hmm. people that we've put in charge of this. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Does Ohio Governor Mike DeWine's order that all state agencies divest of any Russian investments have any real-life ramifications? How much money have Ohio agencies invested in Russia anyway? And Lisa, I'll acknowledge right up front, this is an unfair question to ask you because we don't have all the information we need to I was going to say, that remains to be seen. I know that uh, Plain Dealer and the Cleveland.com have calls out to a couple of uh, uh, union or uh, pension funds to find out whether... You know, they've invested in that and that we're awaiting comment from Ohio State University and also the Ohio Public Employees Retirement System, which is probably the largest, I would think. Um, But anyway, uh, Governor DeWine's executive order is calling for the divestiture of Russian investments by all state agencies, universities, boards and commissions. Further, he wants them to terminate all contracts with Russian companies or companies with Russian ties and not to enact any new contracts with said companies. In addition to that, um, Attorney General Yost sent a letter on Wednesday asking Ohio's five employee pension systems to divest. He says that one of them has at least $112 million in Russian investments, although he didn't mention which one it was. And the ones that we talked to, uh, the Bureau of Workers' Compensation, they have about $30 million in Russian holdings. That's out of $25 billion total. The Police and Fire Pension Fund, about $6.5 million in, in Russian investments. And as I said, we're awaiting comment from other uh, pension groups. And further in this executive order, DeWine has urged the feds to support domestic energy and technology production. And uh, there's a senator from Dayton, uh, Naraj Antani, who's a Republican from the Dayton area. He wants to introduce legislation that would require Ohio pension funds to divest themselves of Russian finances. It's interesting as we all watch what happened, what's happening in Ukraine, and we all feel so bad for them with Vladimir Putin single-handedly trying to destroy them, that everybody wants to do something. And, and as small a step as this seems to be, it's a step by Mike DeWine to try and get Ohio to do the right thing, to exert even a tiny bit more pressure on Russia to stop the massacre uh, so we'll have to see. We've got to, it'd be nice to find out how much money is invested there. It'll take a little while to get it, I guess. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We all like seeing the Cleveland Clinic get recognition for excellence, but is there any reason to have faith in the new Newsweek report ranking it second best hospital in the world? What does Newsweek know about good hospitals anyway, Laura? 
I don't know, what does U.S. News and World Report know about good hospitals? But uh, maybe this one ranks us number two. So maybe we're more likely to believe it than the one we always end up fourth on. It's the second year in a row we've the clinics achieved the number two ranking. And the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, again, took the top spot. There is some science to this. They didn't just go eeny, meeny, miny, mo. Newsweek partners with the Global Research Forum Statistica Incorporated to compile their rankers, rankings. That includes 2,000 hospitals and 25 countries, and they're based on recommendations from medical experts, results from patient surveys, and a performance metric known as healthcare KPI. Um, Of course, this is a worldwide ranking, but the top five were all in the United States. Okay, you say it's not eeny, meeny, miny, moe, and then you say healthcare KPI. That sounds a (laughs) lot like eeny, meeny, miny, moe to me. You know, and the difference is U.S. News and World Report's been doing this for decades. They are very public about all of the parameters they use. Uh, You know, they've been very upfront and transparent about how they do it. You know, it seems like Newsweek just trying to to glom on to U.S. News and World Report's very uh, publicity conscious rankings. And, I, you know, what I is mean, that? What is that health care KPI? Can you t- can you explain it? Uh, no, meeny, 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 <laughs> <more>. <laughs> um, I, I totally agree with you. And maybe, you know, there's been pushback against the college rankings in recent years. And but we haven't really seen pushback from the medical institutions about this because everybody just wants to be number one. And they did. Well, but, rank- OK, but but let me ask you, why is Mayo Clinic better than the Cleveland Clinic? I mean, what what objective well, measure think- says that's better? I, right. Exactly. And, and for what? Right. Like. We all know that the Cleveland Clinic's really great at health, at heart health care, right? So it's not like you're just going to a hospital like it's a spa, like, you know, just to enjoy yourself. You're going for a specific reason to a specific doctor, and it would make a lot more sense to look at the field that you need to be in and the surgery that you need to need to have done and then choose that because it's not like you need all the services yeah i guess i mean can't we just be happy that we know the cleveland clinic is a truly great hospital and they take good care of people why do we have to have bogus rankings I get, you know but we're talking about it so they're getting what and, they want newsweek, mean, you, newsweek newsweek they're in the news <laughs> well i will say you that the, the mayo clinic does have a website where you can neurotically self-diagnose yourself <laughs> <laughs> so, not not that you have personal experience. No, no, not that. That I know every time something my happens. Web browser or anything. <laughs> uh, University hospitals did make this list too. I just want to point that out. They were number thirty on the list of U.S. hospitals. So uh, there's two thousand in the world. It feels like every U.S. hospital ended up on in some ranking on this. So I don't know. Maybe they all pay Newsweek for a little plaque that goes in the front window. I bet they do. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Former Cleveland City Councilman Zach Reed threw a lot of support to Justin Bibb in the general election for mayor last fall. Now he's joining the Bibb administration. Layla, what will his role be? Bibb hired Zach Reed for a job cultivating minority businesses in the city. He has been named the Business Development Administrator in Cleveland's Office of Equal Opportunity. And Reed said the goal of this new job is to help bring more economic opportunities to minority businesses by supporting the growth of their enterprises. The office will provide technical assistance, workshops, and and other help aimed at increasing minority business participation in city contracts as well as in private sector projects. And this is 
a job that's really similar to one that he held in Ohio Secretary of State Frank LaRose's office before he tried to run for mayor. Um, and it was focused on minority business outreach. So rebuilding the city's southeast side will also be one of Reed's goals. And of course, you know, Zach Reed represented that part of Cleveland when he was on city council. So he is both very sensitive to the needs of that that part of town and, and very invested in, in meeting them. So I think this is a job that Zach Reed is really well suited for. And, and he's one of those local leaders who knows how City Hall works. And we've said many times that Justin Bibb would do well to welcome more seasoned folks like Zach Reed into the fold. So I think this achieves multiple purposes, don't you think? Yeah, I, I kept wondering wh- wh- when Reed would join the administration. I mean, he, you know, Reed ran a pretty clean campaign for mayor, lost in the primary, and then gave full-throated support to Justin Bibb. And he didn't just say, I endorse him. He knocked on doors and went through town with him. He he worked very hard to get Bibb elected. And it meant something in the section of town yeah, that, I think, where I Reed think, is popular. I think Bibb won like 82% of, of, uh, of, of votes in, in that part of town. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, it's one thing to say, yeah, I endorse him. It's another to really put your, your shoe leather out there. So I figured he would join the administration in some role, and it took a while to do it. And you're right, Bib is lacking the wizened veteran who can whisper in his ear and say, that's a pothole, avoid that. You know, be careful there. Here's some history you need to know. Uh, we have seen Bib ha- take a couple of small stumbles because he didn't have that person in his orbit. So this is a good move. I, I think it's smart. I mean, Bib keeps doing smart things, mm-hmm. keep bringing on good people. Um, you know, eventually, like any mayor, he'll screw up big time and we'll <laughs> make all sorts of noise about it. So far, he's doing okay. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Supporters of downtown Cleveland are worried that employers will reduce their office space as workers continue working from home. But one big law firm is bucking that trend as it leaves its home of 30 years. Lisa, this is big news in real estate circles. Who is the firm and where is it going? I actually find this to be encouraging myself. Uh, The third largest Cleveland law firm, Benish, Friedlander, Copland, and Arnanoff, they're moving from their current office at 200 Public Square, where they've been since 1994, and they're going to be taking over eight floors of the Key Tower, floors 42 through 49. Uh, That's about 164,000 square feet. It's about the same size as our current office, but it gives them some room to grow. So they do have some some room for expansion, which again, to me, is encouraging because I want to see downtown come alive again. Uh, The managing partner of the firm, Greg Eisenberg, says they wanted to stay in Cleveland. That's been our home for 85 years. And again, they, you know, they have a new space that allows them room to grow so they can stay in place for a long time. They said the pandemic did change their workplace. Basically what they're doing at their firm is employees have to be in the office twice a week and they can choose where they want to work for the other three days of the work. And that was before Omicron hit. And that may change at year's end, but they say that flexible schedules will remain. But this is a huge commitment to downtown office space. Well, and it's also a huge loss to 200 Public right. Square, the former BP building. I mean, that's that's a big block of offices that are suddenly vacant for one of the signature buildings in Cleveland and a big win for the key tower. So it's one that has people talking. We put that story up yesterday and it went right up toward the top of the charts. I think people have a big interest in what is happening. And of course, we have to say that this is not new space. It's just one space being moved to another building. So we're not gaining more, you know, office, you know, occupancy. It's just moving. So 
Yeah, but other other companies are downsizing. The fact that they are not and they're built for expansion is a big deal for downtown. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Let's wrap it up with something light. How does pop culture expert Troy Smith rank the nominees for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Laura, Troy is a genius when it comes to these <laughs> kinds of things. It's always fun to talk about his perspective. So how does he rank all of the nominees and how they should get in? Absolutely. I, I agree. And Troy based these rankings on the Rock Hall tiers scoring system, which gives points to each act for appearing on critic lists like Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Albums or the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame's Songs That Shape Rock and Roll. So this is not just him saying who he likes the most, but I'm totally just telling you what Troy thinks because I have no opinion. I am not cool enough to have opinions on this music. <laughs> but... Eminem comes in first. He's the biggest hip-hop artist of all time by a wide margin, resume of classic albums, and point-wise, he rivals Fleetwood Mac, Tom Waits, and the Beastie Boys. So he, t- he takes first place in Troy's rankings. Number two is Kate Bush, who has tons of critical acclaim. She ranks as one of the most influential fe- female artists of the last half century. Number three is Beck. His first major, major single, Loser, was a generational anthem for the 90s, so even I know that. And has released all sorts of celebrated al- albums for three decades now. Number four is A Tribe Called Quest. And that's one of the greatest albums in modern music history to start its career. And exceptional material all the way up to We Got It From Here. Thank you for your service in 2016. Then number five is Eury- Eurythmics. And that's Annie Lennox and Dave Stewart. They've been integral fig- figures in the growth of electronic music since the 80s. So he ranks all 17 of these. I believe they're 17. And uh, obviously we don't know yet. But sorry, Chris, um, Dolly Parton comes in at number eight. So she wow. is not at the bottom of his list. <laughs> Holy moly. All right. <laughs> he, where, does, where, he does say you do have to decide if you want country music in the rock hall. Where did um, Pat Benatar come out in that list? Uh, not in the top 10, actually. Oh, so, near the bottom, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah, I'm surprised yeah. at that. Uh, 17. She oh, was, my gosh. 17. She was such a groundbreaking artist in video that um, when MTV started. Okay, well, check out Troy's list and his reasons on cleveland.com. It'll publish in the Plain Dealer Sunday, Laura? I believe so, in the Arts and uh, Life section, yep. Okay. You're listening to Today in Ohio, and that's it for the week. Heading into a beautiful weekend. I hope you enjoy it. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Layla. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks to everybody who listens.